the show, everybody. We start the show with me blowing my nose. <laughs> very professional. I always try to be very professional here on the show, uh, as you can tell. So, um, jam-packed for you today. We are going to lead with Andrew Cuomo and his response to the allegations against him. There's a lot to say about the direction which he chose to go in, the way in which he chose to respond. Um, Have some interesting responses to the COVID stimulus relief bill. We have uh, some West Virginia Republicans weighing in and giving their thoughts on it. We have um, some Fox News idiots who try to make $1,400 checks sound like it's a bad idea, not because it's not $2,000, which is a legitimate criticism, especially because the Democrats said they're going to do $2,000, but they try to make $1,400 sound bad because they say it's too much. So that's uh, infuriating. We'll get to that. Um, We have Trump's desperate attempts to stay relevant, although to be fair, I mean, there really is an argument that he, uh, he is relevant, at least as far as the media is concerned. We have CNN doing a puff piece on Tucker Carlson that accidentally uh, makes him more relevant than he is. And um, later on in the show, we have some foreign policy news, including how many bombs did the United States drop per day in the war on terror? You are not going to want to miss this story. This is really something else. And the genocide going on in Yemen, I actually have to give some credit to uh, CNN for doing something that appears like actual journalism. So some really important stuff there. Without further ado, let's go ahead and get started, and we're going to do that with Andrew Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo is uh, in some hot water. There's about 712 scandals surrounding him at the moment. Um, And, you know, listen, a lot of them are completely justified. So he's under pressure because a number of Democratic lawmakers are calling for his resignation. If I'm not mistaken, I think every single New York congressperson is calling for his resignation, including AOC and Jamal Bowman and Mondaire Jones. You have uh, people who are politicians at the state level as well calling for his resignation. And understand, again, this is not Republican. I'm sure there are Republicans who called for his resignation as well, but I haven't seen that in the news recently. Um, These are Democratic lawmakers who are saying he needs to resign. Now, he came out and responded to the various allegations against him and the various scandals surrounding him. Um, This is after the news of so many lawmakers calling for his resignation. Take a look. Uh, As I have said before, and I firmly believe, and my administration is always represented, women have a right to come forward and be heard, and I encourage that fully. But I also want to be clear. There is still a question of the truth. I did not do what has been alleged, period. I won't speculate about people's possible motives, but I can tell you as a former attorney general who's gone through this situation many times, there are often many motivations for making an allegation. 
And that is why you need to know the facts before you make a decision. There are now two reviews underway. No one wants them to happen more quickly and more thoroughly than I do. Let them do it. I'm not going to argue this issue in the press. That is not how it is done. That is not the way it should be done. Serious allegations should be weighed seriously, right? That's why they are called serious. As I've told New Yorkers many times, there are facts and then there are opinions. And I've always separated the two. When I do briefings, I put out the facts and then I offer my opinions. But they are two different concepts. Politicians who don't know a single fact, but yet form a conclusion and an opinion are, in my opinion, reckless and dangerous. The people of New York should not have confidence in a politician who takes a position without knowing any facts or substance. That, my friends, is politics at its worst. Politicians take positions for all sorts of reasons, including political expediency and bowing to pressure. But people know the difference between playing politics, bowing to counsel, cancel culture, and the truth. People know the difference between playing politics, bowing to cancel culture, and the truth. Let the review proceed. I'm not going to resign. I was not elected by the politicians. I was elected by the people. Part of this is that I am not part of the political club. And you know what? I'm proud of it. That is an incredibly weaselly response. So he's trying to be populist in his reaction here. Oh, they're only coming after me because I'm not part of the politicians club. I'm not one of the elitists. I'm an outsider. I was elected by the people. Dog, your dad was governor of New York and he ran for president. He was a giant democratic politician, big political figure. Your brother is a CNN host, and he was throwing softballs down the center of the plate for you in the middle of the pandemic as you were making horrific decisions that were killing people. He was playing footsie with you live on air and joking about how, hey, we get together and have meatballs for dinner over here. Isn't it wonderful when mama's there and daddy's there? You are the ultimate insider. You're the ultimate insider. And he's trying to, listen, he's trying to pull a page out of Trump's book, right? Fake populism. Pretends to be an outsider as he represents the interests of insiders. Oh, a bunch of politicians are calling for me to resign. Have you considered that politicians are bad? Cutesy little trick is not working on anybody. On anybody. Um, But the most infuriating part, I'm burying the lead here. 
The most infuriating part is he's like, I will not bow to cancel culture. Okay, well, if you didn't think yet that cancel culture now has absolutely no meaning and it's completely amorphous, now you know. Now you know that that is the case. You know, listen, it's, it's, it's the in thing to now say anything I dislike is cancel culture. I'm just going to describe whatever it is that I don't like as cancel culture. So, you know, it, again, it has absolutely no meaning anymore. There was a time when you could bring up cancel culture and it referred to, you know, authoritarians cracking down on freedom of speech, you know, not allowing some speaker on a college campus. Like that was the original idea of it. Now it's morphed into anybody who disagrees with me or anybody who even has a legit criticism, a substantive criticism. You just say, ah, you, you cancel culture. You're hitting me with cancel culture because you're accurately calling out my record and things I've done. It's just, it's so gross. It's so gross. It's so misleading. It's so manipulative. Every part of this is incredibly manipulative. Now, uh, let me give you some more information on this. So I just learned this, but apparently Andrew Cuomo, this is how terrible he is. I mean, there's a million reasons why he's terrible. But he started this thing called the Women's Equality Party in New York. Now, you know, you might hear that say, oh, what, I guess he cares deeply about women's issues, right? What, does he consider himself a feminist or whatever? No, he started the Women's Equality Party, the W, because he wanted to confuse people and siphon votes from the Working Families Party, WFP, the Working Families Party, the political party in New York. That's kind of to the left of the Democrats, and what they do is they endorse um, the left flank of the Democratic Party, the people who are more in line with Bernie Kratz. Um, that's general, although, you know, recently there was a scandal in the 2020 primary. They endorsed Elizabeth Warren over Bernie Sanders, even though leadership preferred Warren, but the people preferred Sanders. So there was a big scandal around them, and they're certainly not, you know, totally pure. They have their own issues for sure. But they are definitely to the left of, you know, the establishment consensus of the Democratic Party. They don't like Andrew Cuomo. They had to beef with Andrew Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo fought back against them by doing this manipulative gross trick, creating his own party, the Women's Equality Party, to siphon votes from the Working Families Party. And also, by the way, they endorsed him over women. So the Women's Equality Party endorsed Cuomo over Cynthia Nixon. So it was nothing but a gross political trick that he did. That's all that was. The other thing he did is apparently he hired way more women than almost anybody. And so he would tout that as like, see my credentials on women's issues? Aren't I so woke? Aren't I so incredible? Aren't I such a feminist? I'm hiring all these women. But then, of course, you know, news came out. There's, I don't know how many allegations out, seven, something like that, allegations against him. Um, And I love when he says in this, I'm not going to argue this issue in the press. That's not how it should be done, as he's literally arguing the issue in the press. I mean, that says a lot about Andrew Cuomo right there. And the final point I'll make is he says, quote, there are facts and then there are opinions. And I would throw that right back in his face. Andrew, it's a fact that the decision you made on nursing homes during the peak of COVID in New York, led to the deaths of many grandmas and grandpas. You killed many grandmas and grandpas 
because you made it so COVID-positive patients can go back in the nursing home and then it ripped through them like wildfire. And then, on purpose, you hid the death count. You reduced the death count. It was at least 50% higher than what they originally reported. And he did that to try to make himself look better. So he made the decision that killed grandma and grandpa and then covered it up. So listen, don't get it twisted. I'm totally in favor of everybody coming out and whatever personal experience or story they've had with Andrew Cuomo in regards to sexual harassment or what have you, everybody should come out and be heard on that front. But let's keep our priorities straight here. The fact of the matter is people should have been calling for him to resign back when we heard about how he killed grandma and grandpa. That was the biggest problem, making decisions that actively lead to the deaths of thousands of people. That's worse than any of the claims being made now in terms of sexual harassment. That's not to say they don't matter. They do matter. That's not to say they shouldn't be heard. They should be heard. But let's just keep our priorities in order here. And let's recognize the real thing should be people calling him for to resign over that um, and impeachment over that. If that's not something that's worthy of impeachment, then there's nothing worthy of impeachment. Actively making a decision that kills grandma and grandpa, and then you cover it up, meaning he knows he did something wrong. So, and also, I, you should have nothing but seething hatred and disdain for mainstream media who played footsie with Andrew Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo released a book in the middle of the pandemic, acting like he defeated the pandemic, talking about his amazing decisions. It was all a cult of personality that developed around him because of media puff pieces. The media, you know, pumping up his ego and acting like he's, he's a boss in charge. Why? Because he speaks in full sentences, unlike Trump. Even though he's Democratic Trump, he was fake leading throughout this crisis, making terrible decisions. So um, the guy's terrible, and he should resign. He said he's not going to resign, so they should impeach him. What's going to happen? I have no idea. I have no idea. Some people are saying, oh, he'll probably get impeached because... The Republicans are going to go against them, and then a lot of the Democrats are against them, so maybe he'll get impeached. I don't know. I don't know, because if the Republicans are smart, they'll realize that um, there is – whoever would replace Cuomo would be to the left of Cuomo, and so Cuomo is, will be more favorable for the Republicans than anybody else, so they might actually keep him alive. I really don't know. I really don't know what's going to happen. Um, and spare me, by the way, with all the, the partisan garbage on this front, because – the fact of the matter is, Republicans at the national level copied and pasted Cuomo's legislation on protecting nursing homes. So they didn't want any liability. They didn't want people to be able to sue the nursing homes when people died as a result of these decisions. But the national Republican cried bloody murder over that, saying it was a terrible policy, and they're correct, by the way. But then they copied and pasted it, and they supported that policy. So... Spare me. There are no good guys in this. There are no good guys in this. But there you have it. Andrew Cuomo with his pathetic response to the multiple scandals against him, talking about cancel culture and pretending he's some sort of outsider and he's not part of the political club. Complete garbage. Okay. Next. Let's talk a little bit about the COVID relief bill. I think you guys are going to like this story. This story is very fascinating, if I don't say so myself. 
CNN went to West Virginia, a very, you know, right-wing county in West Virginia, and they spoke to people there, and a lot of these Republicans love the COVID relief bill. Why? Because they're getting, you know, you're getting money. You're getting direct checks. There's an easy way to make people like you. Cut them a check. (laughs) So it's not rocket science, right? So anyway, here's the segment. Let's listen to what they say, and then we'll respond. Economic life has long been challenging in the mountainous towns of West Virginia coal country. The COVID outbreak has made things much worse. Stuff for my kids, for, you know, my wife, my whole family in general. I mean, I got a lot of my families out of work. Kevin Johnson is a coal miner, but like many other people in this area, lost his job. I love the mines. I mean, it's good money, really good money, good money, good living. How hard is it right now? It's a struggle right now. Here in Williamson, West Virginia, the seat of Mingo County, the COVID relief bill is a huge relief for so many people. Garland Thompson is a restaurant dishwasher. I'm excited about it. You know, anytime you can help areas depressed as Mingo County in West Virginia and give people $1,400, hopefully that'll, it's going to help a little bit. Help you? Uh, yes, sir. Help me. Yeah, me and my wife. There is great awareness among people in Mingo County that their senior U.S. Senator Joe Manchin could have brought down this bill if he wanted to, that he is, in effect, a kingmaker. And many people we talk to here like that. Charles McGuire says he almost always votes Republican, including for Donald Trump, but he respects the political moves made by his conservative Democratic senator. Most of the time he just speaks his mind and he speaks what is true. I think Senator Manchin's done uh, very well uh, in helping us do this. This is the mayor of Williamson, Charlie Hatfield, who is an ancestor of the famous Hatfield family that feuded with the McCoys in this very area back in the late 1800s. The conservative Democratic mayor, who doesn't want to reveal if he votes Democratic or Republican in national elections, does reveal he very much likes this bill. I think it's a good thing, and I can tell you from what I'm saying that the city alone will probably get about a million dollars of and what proportion of your budget is that? Oh, it would represent almost a third. Yeah, it's, yeah. Well, this is big money. It's big money. We did meet a couple of people in town who agree with Republicans in Congress who all gave the bill a thumbs down. I don't like none of the stuff they're doing right now. There's a lot of waste in the, in the money. But almost all we talk to here feel differently. Sheeran Ray Justice has a disability and hasn't been able to find a job. How do you feel about the fact that no Republican senators voted for this COVID relief bill. They all said no to it. Yeah, that's, that's some bull, that's some hogwash bullshit there. I mean, they should, I mean, I apologize for my language, but they should uh, loosen up a little bit, you know what I mean? Kevin Johnson, the laid-off miner, says he voted for Donald Trump and usually supports Republicans, but disagrees with how the GOP has handled this. When this 80 says he will now be able to pay up the rent and pay up the bills because people are behind, you know, as well as everybody else. I'm sure I ain't the only one that's got a tough time. Tough times for so many. And now the hope things will start getting better soon. That clip was absolutely fascinating because it highlights something that we've pointed out for a long time, which is this fact. There's this misnomer in mainstream media that a West Virginia Democrat 
or West Virginia folks in general. Like, they have to be more right-wing because that's what those people prefer. They prefer more corporatist policies. That is complete and utter bull. In West Virginia, they want a more populist politics. They have a rich labor history there. So really, the kind of politician that appeals to them is economically left-wing, but socially more moderate or conservative. So in other words, a West Virginia Democrat should be more in favor of a $15 minimum wage, should be more in favor of Medicare for all, should be more in favor of universal basic income. The only areas where they could be more moderate or right-wing would be social issues, would be issues like abortion, for example. You know, that, and by the way, that's not me saying I agree with that position on abortion, because I don't. It's not, you know, on gay marriage, for example. And again, I don't agree. I'm pro-gay marriage. But what I'm saying is, if you wanted to reflect the actual opinions of the people in West Virginia, you'd be socially more moderate or right-leaning and fiscally or economically solidly on the left. Now, what Joe Manchin has done is conflated those things. So he is more to the right on social issues, but he's also more to the right and more corporatist on economic issues. And that's not what people in West Virginia want. That's not what they want. They like the fact they just got a, a check cut to them. And you know what? They would have liked it even more if instead of $1,400, it was $2,000. They would have liked that even more. It's not like they're sitting around and going, well, you know, I really wish Joe Manchin and I really wish the Democratic Party would serve Wall Street more and deregulate more and cut taxes for the wealthy more. But this is the, this is the picture that's painted in mainstream media of what a West Virginia Democrat is supposed to be. And again, it's just flat out incorrect. My favorite guy was the one who said, that's some hogwash bullshit right there. And then I think that was his mom next to him, like, oh, that bad, don't use that language. <laughs> that was very charming. I really liked that guy. That was fun. Um, now, the things that are in this bill that definitely will help people, $3,000 uh, child tax credit, $300 expanded unemployment. By the way, it was 400 until Joe Manchin forced them to cut it back to 300 Now, if these people in West Virginia got the 400 they would have been happier than the 300 so why did Joe Manchin do that? He did that because he's representing his donors, because he's a corporatist, and he's not representing the people here. Obviously, the people here would have preferred the $400 unemployment. Um, also, the $1,400 checks. The, the little discussed fact about this bill, which is one of the best parts of the bill, is that it saved over a million pensions, which is colossal. It's so huge. Um, and it also you know, bailed out the states. But what's not in the bill, the $2,000 were promised immediately, and the $15 minimum wage... I guarantee you, if you talked to these people about those policies, they would have preferred them. They would have liked the bill more if it was $2,000 checks and $15 minimum wage. So, you know, the point I want to make is this, because I feel like people are very biased by, you know, the, the time and place that they currently live. Everybody gets a, a misimpression of what's possible and not possible based on the moment. So everybody has, to one extent or another, a status quo bias. And what I would say is this clip shows you that really the country is yearning for an FDR-style social democrat on economics. That's what the country is yearning for. 
Here you have an overwhelmingly Republican county and voting district in West Virginia. And across the board, almost all of them are like, yeah, I, I love this bill. And if anything, they wish it would have gone further. I mean, that says so much. It really, really does. The country is yearning for a populist left figure. Now, when the last time we had something resembling social democracy on economic issues, something resembling a populist left approach to politics, it was FDR. And you know what? He won four times. And the Republicans were convinced we might never win the presidency ever again. That's why they did term limits, because they thought, oh, my God, that'll give us a prayer of winning at some point. But if we don't do term limits, we're screwed. The Democrats are going to win forever in perpetuity. And people forget about that. People forget that it's possible for a presidential candidate to win like 45 states. You think now, oh, no, the times are too rigidly partisan and it's always going to be you know, there's always going to be a split that's roughly 50-50. Nonsense! Not, that's not true. People have not been given the option of true populist left. People have not been given the option of social democracy. I'm telling you, if Joe Biden came into office and said, not only are we going to do $2,000 checks, we're going to do it recurring. We're going to do universal basic income. That's what we're going to do. I'm going to sign an executive order that declares this pandemic a crisis and an emergency and use that provision of the Affordable Care Act to expand Medicare to everybody in the country because of COVID. So I'm going to do an executive order for Medicare for all. Everybody has health care. I'm going to do universal basic income. I'm going to do the $15 minimum wage. I'm going to legalize tax and regulate marijuana and basically create a brand new booming industry overnight. If he went in there and actually did these things, raised taxes on the wealthy, he would crush it in his reelection bid. Granted, he's going to be really old. Who knows if he's going to make it that far. But his approval rating would be even higher. Guys, he's doing even less than the bare minimum right now, and his approval rating is still 58%. Why? Because he cut $1,400 checks, giving people some money. People go, hmm, I needed this, and I like this. Imagine it was $2,000 recurring. Imagine it was a $15 minimum wage. Imagine he did universal health care in the middle of the pandemic. Just imagine Imagine what the reaction would be. People could have whatever opinions they want about partisan politics. But you know what? When your bank account is sitting pretty and you feel, feel more material well-being, at the end of the day, you're going to support the, can, the continued reality of that and whoever's going to facilitate making your life better. So that's what would happen. And... Um, this bill is a great example of it. Again, in many ways it fell short. They should have done the $2,000 check. They should have done the $15 minimum wage. Um, but with, even without those, it was like 59% of Republicans supported this bill and over 70% of the American public supported this bill. The tiniest bit, the tiniest drop of populism, and people lose it, and they love it. Now imagine if you actually went all the way. It'd be a political winner. And then the other thing is you can brag. You get to brag about that. You get to go out there and, you know, puff your chest out and say, I'm the shit. Because you would be in that scenario, you know. So um, there's a lot to take away from this clip. And actually, I'm sorry, one more point that I wanted to make real quick. 
it, this makes me mad at the media also, though, because this was a rare, really good clip from CNN. But I really think that if the people were educated more about the state of politics, they would know that, you know, conservative Democrat uh, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, this guy was actually getting in the way of giving these people more. Like, I don't think those people know the details of what happened behind the scenes with Joe Manchin, that he's one of the reasons $15 minimum wage was killed. I don't think they know that he's the reason unemployment is 300 instead of 400. And at one point they were saying it was going to be 600. I don't think those people know that Joe Manchin actively made the bill worse. Now, granted, he's better than a Republican because every Republican voted no on this, every single one, and he voted yes on it. So there is a difference. I'm not doing full false equivalence here. It's better to have him there than some, you know, insane Republican who would be against anything no matter what. But Joe Manchin did actively make the bill worse. And I don't think these people are educated on the details. And if they were educated on the details, then even they would go, oh, we want to elect Democrats. We want to elect Democrats to the left of Joe Manchin, particularly on economics. So um, mad at the media for not educating people properly. But even with the misinformation out there, you can't hide the reality when over 70% of the country is like, yeah, I like this bill compared to nothing. Because people are struggling. And so when you cut them checks, they're going to go, oh, my God, thank God, that's wonderful. But again, they should have gone further. They should have gone further. And Democrats need to understand, if you do go further, people are going to love you and you're going to keep winning. But, of course, the Democrats are balancing doing stuff for the people and representing their donors. And they usually fall on the side of just representing their donors, which makes the elections close. As opposed to if you really did what was right by the people, you'd win like FDR did, nonstop. Okay. Next. There's a criticism of the COVID relief bill that I think is incredibly substantive uh, because I've made it a lot myself. Namely, the Democrats said $2,000 checks immediately when they were campaigning, Warnock and Ossoff said it. Um, and then not only did they not do it immediately, they didn't do $2,000 checks at all. They didn't even just do the $1,400 checks that, that, you know, when you add the 600 makes 2000 because they means tested it even further. So they definitely lied and went back on their work. That's the criticism that's legit. The other criticism that's legit is you said $15 minimum wage, you didn't do it, and you didn't even fight for it. You immediately caved on it. Um, so those are the criticisms, criticisms that are legit. There are many criticisms of this bill that are not at all legit. They're incredibly stupid. Well, here's Fox Business Network. You got Carl Rove and Stuart Barney. They're going to give us some of those terrible, horrendous, astoundingly bad criticisms. All right, let's look at this headline. It's quite long, but I will read it for you. Dems nicks GOP spending bill improvements. It's popular now, but voters may regret the $1.9 trillion expense by November 2022. Who wrote that? Carl Rove wrote it, and he joins us now. Carl, welcome back to the program. It's great to see you, sir. Thank you, Stuart. Um, do, do you think that these $1,400 checks will backfire? I would have thought they've been wildly popular. 
Well, look, we're practical people. 75% of Americans are going to get these checks. And how many of those people are going to say, why am I getting a check? I, I, I've got a couple of friends in South Carolina, two retired ladies, uh, a mother-in-law and aunt of a friend of mine. They got their $600 checks last year, and their first response was, why did they send them to us? And, and think about this. The, the United States Senate turned down an amendment to deny checks to felons. People have been in jail for a year. So they got in there before COVID started. They're going to get checks. Uh, college students are going to get checks. They refuse to go on record and say, we're going to deny checks to illegal aliens. So I think people are going to say, okay, fine, uh, thanks for sending out the money, but I, did I really need it? And what's going to really bring this to a boil is the fact that this bill is so expensive. And people are going to say, did we really need to spend $1.8, $1.9 trillion in order to deal with an issue? Think about this, Stuart. In the bill, vaccines have between 14 and $20 billion worth of spending. If you take all of the health-related COVID-19 issues in here, it's between 100 to $160 billion total, everything. $1.8 trillion total. 8.5% or less of the bill is actually devoted to COVID. And think about this. This is an emergency, right? We spend $1.23 to $2.3 trillion this fiscal year, that is to say, by the end of September, but we spent $692 billion under this emergency bill over the next 10 years. We spent $458 billion in fiscal year 22. We spent $114 billion in fiscal year 23. We spent $63 billion in fiscal year 24 and $37 billion in fiscal year 25 and so on. Really, an emergency and we're spending money for the next decade? And you mentioned yes, you're, about assuming that, you, you're assuming that we're all economically rational. I can easily understand. We get the economy going. I mean, it's going to go gangbusters throughout the rest of the year. And President Biden's going to say, see, we spent all that money. We spent it wisely. We got the economy to recover. I can make that case. Well, yeah, sure they will make that case. But the ordinary good sense of Americans will say, wait a minute, I'm doing okay. Why did we give me a $1,400 check? But people are not doing okay, so the overwhelming majority are not going to say that. Guys, before COVID, nearly 80% of Americans were already living paycheck to paycheck. That's before COVID. Now imagine what it's like after COVID. There was this incredible fact that I saw. I think it was Matt Brunig who tweeted it. Um, at the very peak of the first wave of COVID, there was a time when just over 50% of Americans didn't have a job, weren't working. Some other facts that were incredible, what was it? I think 40% of Americans at some point during this were food insecure. Nearly half the country in what's supposed to be the richest country in the world, food insecure, nearly I think it was 32% of the country couldn't pay rent or their mortgage. I mean, this thing, guys, it's a pandemic, and it's a subsequent, I think it's fair to call it a depression. I mean, maybe you could say deep recession. I don't know. But there's a colossal downturn. I mean, this thing absolutely obliterated people. And he's out there like, I think people are going to go, I don't even need this money. What? Just because you have a whiteboard and you have a bunch of stuff scribbled on it, a bunch of numbers, doesn't mean you're making a good point, Carl. He really thinks, like, oh, I have a whiteboard, and I'm scribbling numbers, 
and this guy's got a British accent, so we have to be right about stuff, right? Aren't the optics of this wonderful? But look at what he's saying. He's like, oh, voters may regret the spending bill in the future. What's that based on, Carl? Dickie McGee's act. It's based on nothing. Because over 70% of the country supports this bill right now. Over 70%. 59% of Republicans support this bill. So when he says voters may regret this in the future, what's he basing that off of? Nothing. He's pulling it directly out of Carl Rove's anus. That's what he's doing. He's making it up. Why? Because he thinks that. Why? Because he's wealthy. He's rich. And he doesn't like anything that helps regular people. He only wants to help his corporate donors and billionaires. Um, he says, how many of these people are going to say, why am I getting these checks? A very, very small number, Carl. <laughs> A very small number of people. And by the way, even if you don't, let's say there are some who don't need the check. Um, a much more likely response is, is like, oh, even though I don't need this, I still like it. <laughs> like, that's, a very, that's more likely to happen. Uh, then he brings up, this is the hackiest partisan attack of all time. He brings up how the Senate turned down denying checks to felons. It was, not, it was a virtue signaling posture thing that the Republicans did. But the reason why it's so ridiculous is that this same, two bills under Trump, the exact same thing happened where checks got cut to felons. You want to know why? Because they're Americans. By the way, you want to know where the money really ends up going? To the families of the felons. So what do they want to do? You want to deny the money going to the families of felons? You have somebody in your family, you did something wrong, so now you should suffer as a result of it? And again, it happened under Trump. The felons got the check. They didn't say anything about it then. In fact, these idiots voted for it. Tom Cotton was making the same criticism. He voted for a bill that cut checks to felons. Spare me, spare me, spare me this bullshit hack attack. He even brings up college students are going to get checks as if that's a bad thing. Go talk to a few college students. Hey, are you happy they're getting a check? You're going to be like, hell yeah, bitch. Are you kidding me? Absolutely. Um, and then, of course, the, the go-to final argument that these clowns make is always about the debt and the deficit. It's, it's so expensive. It's going to cost so much money. You know what else costs a lot of money? Trump's tax cuts for the rich from 2017 83% of the benefits of that bill went to the wealthy, 83%. It added nearly $2 trillion to the deficit. Karl Rove supported those tax cuts. Why? He doesn't really care about the debt and the deficit. He just wants to give all the money to billionaires and the wealthy and corporations, his buddies at the country club. That's what he wants. If he actually had some sort of principled concern against the debt and the deficit, he would have said we can't be for these tax cuts because they're irresponsible because they're adding to the debt and the deficit, and I can't have that. I need some, like, if I'm going to do tax cuts, I need to make it deficit neutral. But he didn't say that. None of them said that because they don't really care. This is bullshit. The deficit hawkery is complete bullshit. You know what else we spend a colossal amount of money on and nobody bats an eyelash? The military. We have the biggest military in the world. By far and away, we spend more than at least the next 10 biggest countries combined, and most of them are our allies. We don't need to spend that much money. They're choosing to spend that much money. Did you know the F-35-2 fighter jet, it cost nearly $2 trillion to create the damn thing, and it barely worked. There was a period where it didn't work at all. $2 trillion on a fighter jet? Did he say anything about that? Oh, my God, this costs so much money. What are we doing? That old F-35 isn't good enough? What are we doing? He never said anything about that. He's in favor of a blank check for the military. He's in favor of a blank check for tax cuts for the wealthy. The only time. He trots out the whiteboard and complains about how expensive something is, is when the people get a little bit of help. And by the way, I do mean a little bit of help. 
because this bill should have been $2,000 checks. It should have had $15 minimum wage. It didn't have those things. But he's mad that people are getting a $3,000 child tax credit, $300 unemployment, $1,400 checks. He's mad that over a million pensions were saved under this bill. He's mad that this bill bailed out states. Anything that's for regular people, he's going to come out and bitch and moan and whine and cry about the debt and the deficit, even though he doesn't care about it. Because if he did care about it, he'd rail against military spending and say we need to reduce it. And he would also rail against the tax cuts for the rich. So, I mean, listen, I don't know how else to say it. These guys are totally full of shit, and he made it up. And thankfully, these guys are always going to lose this argument. The bill is over 70% liked. 59% of Republicans like it. You want to know why? Because times are tough. And when you give people some help, they go, thank you, I needed that help. So they're fighting a losing argument. But I do love it when they go mask off. I do love it when they go mask off. And this is why I say you need a strong, robust, aggressive, loud left with backbone. That doesn't back down on issues like Medicare for all and $15 minimum wage and universal basic income. Because if you unapologetically argue for those things, which are so wildly popular, you bait these morons into defending their unpopular positions, and then everybody runs away from them. That's how you build a strong left. Fight them on our turf, on our terms. Go ahead, argue with me about UBI. Have you seen the recent polls on UBI? It's wildly popular now. It wasn't previously. It is now. You want to know why? Because, again, times are tough. And a social security check for everybody is a glorious idea. It's the most direct way to help people. So you want to fight me on that? Fight me on that, son. Let's argue. Let's debate it. Bait these idiots into defending their unpopular positions because that's all they have. They win when they're not having the conversation on economics and class. They win when they shift the discussion and the debate into the culture wars. When they bring up Dr. Seuss, and Mr. Potato Head, now just Potato Head, they win when it's Pepe Le Pew and all that other shit because they, they divert the conversation and derail it. And what they do is they appeal to average people on cultural grounds and make them think, well, if these people agree with me on cultural stuff, they probably agree with me on economic stuff too. No. Read Thomas Frank, What's the Matter with Kansas? This is the same trick that was used in the 2000s, um, by conservatives, they would use the issue of abortion, the issue of gay marriage, the issue of religion to appeal to working class people and get those working class people to support them, but it was a bait and switch. A, vote for me on these cultural grounds and, and the social issues ground, and then I'm going to support the oligarchs and the plutocrats and the kleptocrats and give them endless tax and endless subsidies and bailouts, and I'm going to destroy unions and lower wages, and the list goes on and on. So, but this is what they really believe, and I need you to take note of that, and I need you to remember that. In the middle of a pandemic and what's effectively a depression, this is the argument that Karl Rove is making. Never said anything about the debt and the deficit when it was for giving more money to his billionaire buddies, ever. Never said anything about the deficit when it came to imperialism and endless war, ever, ever. He only says, oh, hold on, what are we doing, when it's a little bit of help for the people. Okay. All right, next. 
Trump is trying desperately to stay relevant. Obviously, he was kicked off Twitter a while ago. So he's trying to find a way to tweet without being on Twitter. And he came up with these official presidential statements that he's releasing. Here's the silliest one I've seen yet. So it says, statement by Donald J. Trump, 45th president of the United States of America. This is in March 10th. I hope everyone remembers when they're getting the COVID-19, often referred to as the China virus vaccine, that if I wasn't president, you wouldn't be getting that beautiful shot. I don't know why he put that in court. <laughs> For five years at best and probably wouldn't be getting it at all. I hope everyone remembers. I mean, this guy morphs into a tomato and melts in front of your eyes if he doesn't get attention. This guy is obsessed with having his name in the conversation. This is the saddest, most insecure, ridiculous, non-tweet tweet post I've ever seen, statement I've ever seen. Imagine sending this to like various news organizations. I, the President of the United States, have something to say. Remember, it's me who defeated the China virus, the gloriousness of me. I was the one who came up with the vaccine so quickly. I was in the lab. I was mixing different chemicals and materials together. And I said, oh, look, I found a little something that can defeat the virus. If you mix in the Robitussin with the Sudafed, sprinkle a little Tylenol in there, and then have some scientists do something else, then maybe you can defeat the virus and inject this directly into people, and it's going to work tremendously. It's going to work unbelievably like you've never seen before. But it was me. Everyone remember, it was me. Come on, dude. Come on, son. But on a serious note for a second, the fact that he's doing this leads me to believe, yes, he's leaning more in the direction of, I'm going to run in 2024 again. Because, you know, this is him trying desperately to keep his name out there, to keep his, you know, his people in line, to try to appeal to the broader electorate. Hey, you might not like me, but... Vaccine. I, mean, I was president when the vaccine came out. So, you know, at, when this thing gets defeated, don't get don't give Biden credit. Don't give Biden credit. Give me credit because I did the thing. So remember that you got to remember that. So I, I do think that he's leaning more in the direction of running again. But somebody made a good point. Even if he doesn't run, the only way he stays relevant is to tease like he is going to run. That's really that would even be a smart business decision for him to do that. I mean, he likes the attention anyway, but the only way he's going to keep making money is to tease that he's going to run in 2024. You know what I mean? Like, we covered the story recently. He's having the, uh, the RNC come to Mar-a-Lago, and there's going to be, you know, the biggest big money donors there, and he's going to give a speech and whatnot. But he cut some sort of a deal where he's going to get paid as a result of that. And I think the only way... He can continue to make money in that kind of way is to tease like he's going to run in 2024. But apparently, and we'll get to this story later, apparently that indecisiveness and the threat of him still dominating the Republican landscape, there's a lot of high-level Republicans that are not cool with that. They're not happy with that because really he's kind of cock-blocking the ambitions of other politicians who want to be the next in line, who want to be the heir apparent, and who also are more preferred by the donor class. Don't get it twisted. Trump gave the donors virtually everything they wanted, but they don't like 
how unhinged he is. They, they never liked the mean tweets. They never liked that you can't tell whether he's coming or going. And they didn't like the obvious and open bigotry. They want you to, your bigotry to be coded and more sophisticated, a Mitt Romney-style bigotry as opposed to a Donald Trump-style bigotry. So, um, but here he is trying desperately to stay relevant, trying desperately to keep his name out there. And you know what? In some ways, it's actually going to work. It is, because, again, we'll get to this story later. This is a different story, but the landscape for the media is brutal. It is grim. It is ugly. You know, mainstream media is in deep trouble, and Trump's presence really did boost their viewership in a way that I don't think anybody else can come close. You know, it's almost like that fake image he created of himself became the reality, that he became the main attraction. He became the endless 24-7 reality show that people couldn't look away from, you know? So, I mean, this is such a sad, pathetic statement, but that man's ego got him to the highest office in the land. And who are we to say that can't happen again? I mean, it's unlikely, but listen, anything is possible, and never say never, especially with this clown. Okay. Let me take a quick break, and then when we come back, CNN, actually, you know what, let me just do this one right now real quick before we take the break. CNN and Tucker Carlson. CNN did this piece on Tucker Carlson that you're going to see here. This is Brian Stelter. Um, Let's see what he thinks about Tucker and what Tucker's up to. And I'm going to tell you why this is a colossal mistake. I have come to one inescapable conclusion about the GOP and the media. I want to see if you agree or disagree with me. Even though Republicans are out of power right now, the use of the media, their use of the media, has a major impact on the Democrats and on political dysfunction. So this, what I'm about to say, directly impacts President Biden and his administration. All right. Are you ready for it? Here's my conclusion. Tucker Carlson is the new Donald Trump. Tucker has taken Trump's place as a right-wing leader, as an outrage generator, as a fire starter. And it's all happening on Fox, just like Trump's campaign did. Which means Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch are ultimately responsible. I mean, think about all the ways these two men are similar. Every day, Carlson is throwing bombs making online memes, offending millions of people, also delighting millions of others, tapping into white male rage and resentment, uh, stoking uh, distrust of big tech in the media, generally coarsening the discourse, never apologizing for anything, and setting the GOP's agenda. Sounds like a recently retired president, right? Even before the 2020 election, there was informed speculation about Carlson as a 2024 candidate. Of course, some of Carlson's detractors say, he's just a troll, he's just really good at ticking people off. But isn't that what they said about Trump for years? Yes, Tucker is known to critique Trump and the Republican Party from time to time. This time last year, he was at Mar-a-Lago trying to convince Trump to take COVID more seriously. But Tucker tells the same conspiratorial us-versus-them story that Trump told, the same they're-out-to-get-you story that Trump told for years. It's the paranoid style in American politics all over again. And Tucker now soaks up some of the same social media fury that Trump did. He soaks the same, same debates that Trump did. 
And it raises the same predicament that Trump raised five or six years ago, whether and how to cover his claims. Here's why this is downright silly. They're going to do with Tucker exactly what they did with Trump, which is cover him nonstop. They're already starting to do that. Make him a bigger deal than he is. And what they need to understand is a lot of people's entire worldview and ideology is trigger the libs. And when Brian Stelter does this, he's effectively giving Tucker exactly what he wants, which is Tucker is triggering the libs, the libs being Brian Stelter. So when you're so obsessed with the culture war, this is a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like the thing that they say they're afraid of, oh my God, the rise of Tucker Carlson, they're going to facilitate that. Now, if they didn't touch his stuff, yes, he has a, a big audience and he'd keep that big audience, but it would be limited to what it already is. Brian Stelter and these insufferable elite Dems on traditional media, they're going to make him bigger than he ever could make himself. And listen, what I, I want to give a plug real quick to um, Matt Taibbi's book, Hate Inc., because he outlines the dynamic in the media amazingly well. Basically, the business model... 24-7 cable news, they realized they do better when they rile people up and have it, we have an official enemy. So there was a time back in the day when we had the Cold War and the Soviet Union was the enemy. And then, you know, there was a time when we had the war on terror and Al-Qaeda was the enemy and radical Muslims were the enemy. And now we've gotten to a point where in the era of Trump, it's more about partisan politics and your fellow American who disagrees with you politically is the enemy. So on MSNBC, Republicans are the enemy, full stop. And on Fox News, Democrats are the enemy, full stop. And sprinkle in like Democrats, but also like immigrants. Um, so now there's a business model. It's incredibly profitable to say that half the country are irredeemable deplorables and there's no redeeming qualities, and they're useless, and they're terrible. And so this is what we're seeing here. Now, Tucker Carlson is going to lob some bombs at various CNN hosts and MSNBC hosts and call them out by name, and they're going to do the same thing back to him. We're going to go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and nobody's going to say anything of substance. Nobody's going to say anything of substance. Nobody's going to say anything about policy and how to improve the country and how to make everybody's lives better. You're just going to bicker like high school idiots, and it's going to be over culture war garbage. And so now his whole segment is, you know, well, what are we supposed to do with Tucker? Well, first of all, not this. Not this. He wants to trigger the libs, and you're facilitating that. You're allowing that. You're the lib, and you're triggered. So you're going to do with Tucker exactly what you did with Trump. They messed up and made Trump president. Why? Because they covered him 24-7. They covered him nonstop. They made a scandal out of everything. One of the biggest problems with the mainstream media is they never get angry at the right things. They always get angry at silly things and then in turn drive more people to the audience of the people they're criticizing. I have no doubt that however many people mainstream media turned against Trump, they also turned that many people in his favor or more. Because again, they covered him in a way 
that was so silly and so lowbrow. I mean, I remember the best example of this. I remember when Trump was doing a rally and he said that the TPP is terrible. The trade deal is terrible. It's going to rape the American people. It's going to rape us. And they, for a day and a half or two days, it was nonstop outrage over the fact that he used the word rape. They may have even invited on like sexual assault survivors to say how the use of that word triggered them. And it's just like, you're performatively being outraged. That's all you're doing. It's performative outrage. It's not real. None of this is real. And so, it, again, it turned a lot of people in his favor. They're going to do the same thing. They're in the process of doing the exact same thing with Tucker Carlson. You know, what I would say is, step aside, son. Let the adults handle this, you know? Like, again, not to toot my own horn here, even though that's exactly what the fuck I'm about to do, but my proudest moments are when people come up to me at Politicon or elsewhere and say, I'm the one who helped deconvert them from that alt-right pipeline and that, you know, right-wing ideology. That nothing makes me happier than hearing that. And honestly, the way in which you do the deconversions is basically the polar opposite of what these idiots on CNN and MSNBC are doing. They're driving more people to in that direction. The way that you deconvert people is to make it all about substance, to make it all about policy, to demonstrate how, hey, this ideology is fundamentally incorrect and it's not going to improve your life. It's not going to improve anybody's life. This is all culture war fodder and garbage. And if anything, where they place the blame is incorrect. The reason that people's lives are not great at the moment is not because of some immigrants that came into the country. That's not true at all. That's the oldest trick in the book is that the elites divert your anger and your attention to people who are lower on the economic ladder than you, you know, as opposed to the fact that they're the ones who are running out the back door with all the money. They're the ones who have rigged the system, rigged the rules. They're insanely corrupt. They bought the government. They own the government. And all policymaking is for their benefit and your detriment. This is how you deconvert people. The other thing is you got to be honest about stuff, man. Like, you know, every now and then he'll say something that's anti-war. So what you do is you go out there and say, okay, good point. But now why are you supporting the politician who is pro-war and who's not in line with the sentiments that you espoused? You know, you can't say, oh, I want to get out of Afghanistan, I want to get out of Iraq, and then you supported Donald Trump who kept us in Afghanistan and kept us in Iraq. It was all a ruse. Trump did what Obama did, anti-war, mouthing the talking points, and then he kept us there behind the scenes. It was the yo-yo effect. Troop levels go up, troop levels go down, troop levels go up, troop levels go down. That's exactly what Trump did. He increased the drone war 432%. So spare me your nonsense about talking like you're anti-war. You're not anti-war. You wouldn't be you know, driving people to support Trump, which is what Tucker Carlson did. This is how you, you know, talk about these people, argue with these people. You don't do a segment like this, which is totally non-substantive and giving him more credit than he deserves. Oh, he's the next Trump. Well, he will be if you keep covering him like this, you know? So uh, just step aside. These guys are, show is so unbearable. I mean, half the time, Brian Stelter is just calling the censure people that he disagrees with and have them banned from social media. And, you know, we've covered those segments. You've seen them before. And the other half of the time, he's actively helping the people that he claims to dislike. It's just so sad. Again, the whole ideology of some people is trigger the libs. And then Brian Stelter gives them exactly what they want. You're not helping, dude. You're not helping even a little bit. Okay. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, a criticism of AOC from Kashama Sawant that I want to play for you. Don't miss that. Stay right there. Uh-huh. 
right, y'all. I am back with you. Okay, so... So, 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 let's... Um, let me show you Kashama Sawant, socialist elected official in Seattle. Let me show you her... Um, let me show you her criticism of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I find this uh, very interesting. Here we go. Kashana Sawant is uh, an elected official. She's a socialist. I believe she's in Seattle. She was elected in Seattle. Um, probably, I think it's fair to say, one of the furthest left, if not the furthest left elected official in the country. She's a really fascinating character, really, really interesting. She went on the Bad Faith podcast um, with Virgil and Bree, friends of the show, um, and they were talking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the strategy that they've employed, the strategy that's been employed by the uh, furthest left Congress people in D.C. So let's see what she has to say, and then we'll respond. Remember what they were saying when we were arguing that when a section of the left was saying, yes, absolutely, there is an opportunity, and instead of just voting for Pelosi as speaker, actually the floor should withhold the vote and use it as a moment to build real pressure for Medicare for all. But what we said, and at least what Socialist Alternative said, was that it's not just as, a, uh, as some sort of uh, drama, it's a meaningless political theater, but to actually do the, use the force of vote tactic in the context of helping to build mass rallies and conferences around Medicare for all. But at that time, uh, AOC and also sections of the ACB, you know, they said that, well, uh, this is not the moment to use your political capital. And in fact, uh, I remember AOC in her response to force the vote, and I think she genuinely meant this. She said, you know, uh, uh, instead of this, we should uh, fight for something winnable, which is $15 an hour. Well, here we are talking about $15 an hour. And again, Biden, Harris, Schumer, Pelosi, all the stalwarts, big business stalwarts of the party, are throwing excuse after excuse. It's the parliamentarian, it's the rules, it's the decorum, it's Joe Manchin. So I think what we have to point to is the, it's the, uh, it's, the it's sort of the um, endless logic of making excuses for the democratic establishment. So today, this excuse, tomorrow it's another excuse. Yesterday it was Medicare for all, today it's $15 an hour. This is a failed strategy. I think that's what we need to point out. It's not so much about whether AOC is genuine or not, if the question is, is the strategy of not being willing to go into open combat against the establishment, is that working or not? And it's clearly not working. She gets it. She gets it. That's the exact criticism that I've been attempting to make for an extended period of time here, but haven't been able to do it in such a succinct way. The question is not about whether or not Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is genuine, or Pramila Jayapal, or Mark Pocan, or Mondair Jones, or Jamal Bowman, or Ilhan Omar, or Rashida Tlaib, or Ro Khanna. You go down the list. The question is not whether or not they're genuine. The question isn't even whether or not they're corrupt. The question is, is your strategy working? 
And the answer is no. And Kashama Sawant points out correctly, there's only one option left. And the option is to go into open combat against the establishment of both parties. That's the only option that's left. Now, they haven't done that. And I can tell you, as somebody who was a co-founder of Justice Democrats, that was the idea. They needed to get in there and go into open combat against the establishment of both parties. They're not doing that. They go into open combat against the Republicans, but they play patty cakes and try to get along, go along to get along with the Democratic establishment. That didn't work, and that's never going to work. If that was going to work, well, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said it. She was like, Sham Swan points this out. Oh, don't you force the vote over Medicare for all. Do it over something that's, you know, more likely to pass, like $15 minimum wage. We just had the option where you could have done it over $15 minimum wage and you didn't do it. So do you see the game that's being played on these people? The game is they always, oh my God, there's always an excuse. There's always something. Oh, we don't have the numbers. Or, oh, the parliamentarian said we can't do that. And so you're not supposed to follow the logic that the establishment is feeding you on every single issue. No, there are some times where you have to draw a line in the sand and fight. Now, here's the thing, guys. These people are scared. I mean, that's, that's really the reality of the situation. They are scared. They do not want to have all of mainstream media rain down holy hell on them and treat them like the enemy and demonize them and vilify them. They don't want that. They don't want the leaders of their own parties to take retribution and revenge against them. They don't want that. But it's the only way you're ever going to win and get anything done. And I got news for you. The media hates you anyway. The leaders of your own party hate you anyway. They despise you. They despise you. So who cares if they, you know, kick it up a few levels? Who cares? You might care, but I don't care that you care. I really don't give a shit about your feelings. I don't care. You were sent there to do a job, to fight for the American people, to fight for working people, to fight for Medicare for all and free college and a living wage and ending the wars and a Green New Deal, and the list goes on and on. You know, um, universal daycare, paid time off. You're supposed to be fighting for these things. You're only going to get them if you fight. So, you know, listen, they're pathetic. They're pathetic. They're pathetic. And I don't want to hear, like, I just saw Pramila Jayapal in an interview singing the praises of this COVID relief bill. You're supposed to be the left flank of the Democratic Party. What you should be talking about is the failure of not getting the $15 minimum wage in there and the $1,400 checks not being $2,000 checks. These aren't small things. These are big things. Think about how many people's lives were ruined because there wasn't a $15 minimum wage in there? Over a million people, more than a million people, over a million people would have been lifted out of poverty, official poverty with a $15 minimum wage, and something like 27 million people would have been helped. And we're just going to sing the praises of this bill when they promised $15 minimum wage and they didn't put it in there? Guys, what had to happen is those 23 or 24 Democrats who signed Rokana's letter telling Kamala Harris and Joe Biden to overrule the parliamentarian. They should have voted as a block and said, 
We're going to vote no unless and until you put the $15 minimum wage in this bill. There are more of us who are saying we're not voting for it if it's not in there than people who are saying they're not going to vote for it if it is in there. So get to work, Joe. Get to work, Kamala. Give these people whatever they need to get on board for the $15 minimum wage. It was the only way we were going to get it. And yes, it would have been tough because the media would have smeared the progressives and Democratic leadership would have taken revenge against them. But that's when you keep using the bully pulpit. Why are you guys afraid to make arguments, to debate leadership, who's wildly unpopular, by the way? What's Pelosi's approval rating? 28%? And you're afraid to argue openly with her? You're afraid to take on the media when the media is historically disliked at this point? Historically. They could try to change the conversation all they want. You're a congressperson. You have power. You have the bully public. You can go out there and give a speech. Say, here's why we're not budging on this. Joe Biden promised this to the American people. Kamala Harris promised this to the American people. A poll in 2019 showed minimum wage increase to $50 an hour is a 67% issue. 67%. Here's how many people it would help. The minimum wage should be, if it kept up with productivity, over $20 an hour. And people are going to fight with us about 15 You don't even want to put 15 in there? <sighs> Fuck out of here. Fight! 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 And if you're not going to do it, then don't whine when people attack you. Don't get upset when people come after you, because they have every right to come after you if you're not doing the thing that we sent you there to do. So people have been more than patient, man. They've been more than patient. And the left doesn't have much to show for their tactics of, well, every now and then I will work with Pelosi and I'll say nice things, and then maybe she'll give me some things if I say nice things to her, and then... From now on, maybe we'll have an open working relationship, and then when I ask for the next progressive thing, maybe she'll put it in there. It hasn't worked. It's never going to work. Make them hate you. And by the way, they think the media shitting on them and Democratic leadership shitting on them will ruin their future prospects. You'll become more popular if you do it. I promise you you'll become more popular. But you have to take on the fight and never back down and never shut up and never stop speaking your mind about what you believe in. So I think Kashama Sawant is exactly right about this. She clearly, completely gets, um, you know, the strategy that we were attempting to do. Um, and she's probably the answer. She's the one who needs to be in Congress or she's the one who needs to be in the Senate because she ain't going to back down. She's going to lead the fight. And you, you know what happens, guys? Usually all it takes is one. All it takes is one person to show a little bit of fucking spine and then the rest of them hop on board. But, you know, listen, it is sad. Because what does it show you? It shows you that these people who we sent there, who we hoped were leaders, none of them are leaders. They're all followers. They are. I'm sorry. As much as I like some of them, they're all followers. They're waiting for somebody else to take the risk. And then when they take the risk and they see, like, oh, the sky didn't fall, when they suddenly start advocating for that position, oh, me too, me too, me too. You know when this happened recently? The, um, and this isn't even one that I necessarily agree with, but it's one where they decided, oh, we're going to puff our chest out and fight. When the, it came to expelling Republican Congress people or senators who fed into the stop the steal nonsense and, um, you know, kind of egged on the insurrection. You had one, I think it was Cory Bush was the first one to come out and say every Republican congressperson who egged on this insurrection and fed into the conspiracy theories, every one of them needs to resign and needs to be expelled. That's what needs to happen. 
and one of them came out and said that. I think it was Corey Bush was the first one. And then all the others came out of the world. Oh, no, yeah, me too. Yeah, totally. Expelled him. So bad. Terrible. Here, here's my statement on it. Here's my interview on it. Here, I'm going to go over here and talk about it. I'm going to go over there and talk about it. But notice, an issue like that, it's a little easier. Why? Because your own, the Democratic Party leadership is not against you when you do that. So you feel like mommy and daddy aren't going to get mad at you, so you feel like you have free reign to go and, you know, be as vituperative and angry and loud as you want to be. You need to feel the right and the ability to be vituperative and angry and unapologetic on issues that piss off Democratic leadership. And if you're not, then you're not doing your job because they're not representing the people. They're representing corporations and their donors. They're not your friend. They're status quo defenders and, and tweakers at best. So just takes one of them to show some spine. I and mean, if Kashama Sawant was there and she was the one doing it, I think people would try to jump in front of that parade, which is what politicians do. You know, a lot of them are followers. They're not leaders. Nobody wants to take a risk. They see one person take the risk and it kind of pays off. And they're like, me too. Me too. Yeah, no, totally. I'm, I'm, I'm totally. We saw that happen with gay marriage, right? There was a time when every Democratic politician was against it. Then a few came forward and everybody was like, no, no, me too. I love the gay community, even though I was just against gay marriage seven and a half minutes ago. I've always loved the gay community. I'm in favor of the gay marriage. So unfortunately, we got a bunch of weak, petty, insecure losers. But the good news is all it takes is one person with spine and back. And then a lot of them follow along. So I'm just happy that there's some elected official somewhere in the country who really understands where we're at. Okay, next. Next. There's a really good point on the issue of healthcare that somebody made on Twitter that I needed to share with you because I really think this says everything about the Democratic opposition to Medicare for all. The Democrats just spent. $52 billion to subsidize COBRA for 1.3 million people until September. That's $40,000 per person for less than six months of health insurance. Most countries spend about five to 6,000 per person per year for universal health care. So do you understand that? This tweet is brilliant, by the way. It really is. Because what it highlights is the objection was never over the dollar amount because they're spending way more with what they just did. And the way the system was before this reinforcement of COBRA, it was the same thing. They're spending way more than they should be. So it was never about the price tag, ever. It's not really an ideological disagreement. It's just not. You know what the disagreement is? A lot of Democratic politicians, and virtually all Republican politicians, they take a lot of money from for-profit health insurance companies, take a lot of money from Big Pharma. They take a lot of money from various special interests that have a vested interest in keeping this system the same because they're getting phenomenally wealthy. And so who really cares that patient care is down the list of priorities? They don't really care. Democratic politicians don't care. These giant companies don't care. But this says it all, doesn't it? $40,000 per person for less than six months of health insurance. 
versus most developed countries spend five to $6,000 per year per person for universal health care. The whole point of the U.S. healthcare system and insurance system is it's a scam within a scam on top of a scam. Everybody's scamming everybody. Everybody's skimming way too much money and running out the back door with it. So that's what happened. Let's take tax money and shower health insurance companies with it. That's what we'll do. And we'll spend an obscene amount of money making them wealthy. That's where we're at. And by the way, somebody made a good point. They said, hold on. When Joe Biden ran, he ran on public option. He totally dropped public option like that, and nobody in the media held him accountable even a little bit. See, it's one thing he should have been for Medicare for all, because 80% or so of the Democratic Party is for Medicare for all. The voters are for Medicare for all. So he should have been arguing for that. He wasn't arguing for that. So he has a very undemocratic position. He was arguing for public option. Then he gets elected, immediately drops public option, and just wants to, you know, tweak around the edges to make Obamacare better. In reality, it was all about shoveling more tax money to his donors in the health insurance industry. And that's what this is. And that's what this is. So listen, the fact of the matter is, if you do single-payer Medicare for all, you cover everybody and it costs less, and it saves money. In fact, it's supposed to save, I think over a decade, there's a study that says it saves $5 trillion. Medicare for all would save $5 trillion. Now, why is that? Well, listen, you got rid of the unnecessary, rapacious, for-profit middleman. So when you get rid of, really, the health insurance companies, they're a mafia. They get in between you and your doctor, and they take a cut. And by the way, they deny care. That's what they do. They tell you, well, this is covered and this is not covered. The other thing is they don't let you see whatever doctor you want to see. Some doctors are in-network and some doctors are out-of-network. They need to go to an in-network doctor. So they get in between you and your doctor. They take their cut and they tell you what is and isn't covered and tell you who you can and can't see. They're providing no value, none, zero. They don't need to be there. The whole idea of a single-payer system is the government is the single-payer, the single-insurer. So you pay tax money to the government, and the government pays for your care. That's how, you know, every developed country has one version or another of a universal health care system. We don't. Even after Obamacare, we don't. We still have millions of people who don't have insurance. And this is the approach the Democrats are taking. Shower tax money on the health insurance companies so that they get wealthy during this pandemic, during this crisis. You would think that in a pandemic that, you know, health insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies, they'd be doing the worst. No, they're swimming in cash because our whole system is a scam. The whole system is rigged. The reason why they don't want to do single-payer Medicare for all is because the health insurance companies would basically be out of existence because there's no reason for them. It's putting the mafia out of business. And guess what? That mafia pays the politicians so the politicians work for them. And that's why you get this fact about COBRA and what the Democrats did. So listen, it's beyond pathetic, because <laughs> what are your options? Your options are this. So the Democrats will expand health insurance, right? But they'll do that by forcing you to go to the private market and showering them with tax money. It's all a scam. And the Republican position is, as Alan Grayson years ago pointed out, and he's correct to point out, is fuck off and die. <laughs> 
what do you say? I forget the exact terminology, but don't get sick. And if you get sick, die quickly. I think that's what he said. And it led to a backlash. People were so outraged. Oh, my God, how could you say that? No, but literally the Republican uh, plan for or the Republican approach in the Obama era and onward to health care was, how about we do nothing and you fuck off? Okay, well, you're saying I don't want to do anything on this front. You do know that about 45,000 to 60,000 people die every year in America because they don't have access to basic health care. So if you say, I want to change anything, and up to 60,000 people die, what you're saying is, I don't care that those 60,000 people die. I don't care. I don't view that as a problem. I don't view that as an issue. If I view it as an issue, I try to fix it. I'm not trying to fix anything. I don't view it as an issue. So, yeah, if you get sick, die quickly. It's pretty much their plan. That's their plan. So those are your options. Total corporate sellouts who shower money on their donors and give you a little bit more health care or people who say, don't get sick, and if you get sick, die quickly. That's the U.S. US, uh, political system. I wish I had a, you know, a witty way to end this segment and give you a positive spin on it, but I don't. Okay. Next. I got to come back to old Donnie. Interesting behind-the-scenes stuff to report to you today. D.C. Insider says Republican lawmakers want Trump nailed by Manhattan's D.A. so they can move on without him. So this is a former Department of Homeland Security official under Trump saying this. Um, I mean, if it's true, they're so weaselly because Republicans had the option to finish off Trump. Um, when you have the January 6th diet coup attempted insurrection, you know, there was a lot of chatter around it and there was an attempt to impeach. Now, listen, impeachment, they were never going to get the numbers for impeachment. They weren't anywhere close to it. But could they have done um, the 14th Amendment and banned him from ever holding public office again? Yes, they could have. Simple majority in the House would have gotten it. And then I think 60 in the Senate and could have got close. Maybe you would have fallen one or two votes short, but maybe you could have made it happen, man. It was possible. It was possible to end his future prospects for office. They didn't do it. They chose not to do it. Even Mitch McConnell. He, oh, I'm condemning Trump, and oh, my God, he did many terrible things. You shouldn't have done what he did or said what he said. And then he's like, and that's why I'm not voting for impeachment. Assuming this is true, they're weasels. But the bigger question is, is this really true? Um, I think it probably is, man. I think it probably is because there are so many people who are waiting in line for their turn. And as long as Trump's on the scene, it's never going to be their turn. So at some point, your ego gets the best of you. And you feel like, well, this is bullshit. This guy had his four years. He lost. Now it's my turn. There's a number of people within the Republican Party who they'll only snuggle up to Trump publicly because they feel like they have to. And behind the scenes, they're like, just go away. I'm sure Ted Cruz is one of those people. Josh Hawley is one of those people. Christy Noem is one of those people. Nikki Haley is one of those people. Nikki Haley didn't know whether she was coming or going with her criticism of Trump. Half the time she was criticizing him vociferously, and the other half the time she was defending him vociferously. They don't know, none of them know what they're doing because all they care about is their future prospects and they want to be president. And so they're trying to say whatever they have to say and do whatever they have to do in order to get to that position. So is it true that Republican lawmakers want Trump to go down in some lawsuits 
I think the answer is probably yes. And we do have a Department of Homeland Security insider official telling us that's exactly what they want. Now, interesting update on the case. I mean, there's a number of cases. There's some, in, I think, in D.C., some in New York. Apparently, there's been about seven interviews with uh, Michael Cohen, who's, you know, was one of Trump's top guys. And I think they're trying to get Trump's money man to flip on him. Now, will that happen? I don't know. I think his name is Alan Weisselberger or something like that. Um, but apparently, I saw some headlines talking about if, if Weisselberger, Berg, whatever his name is, if he feels like his son is going to go down and they threaten a lawsuit against the son and the son might get jail time, that he'll flip on Trump to protect his son. I don't know. This might be speculation. It might be word of mouth, you know, playing telephone on bad information. I don't know. But what we do know is there's been a number of interviews with, is it Michael Cohen or Stephen Cohen? No, Stephen Cohen is the uh, Russia expert who just passed away, Michael Cohen. Um, There's been a number of interviews with him. And as somebody pointed out, I think this is probably true. You don't have seven interviews with this guy who was one of Trump's right-hand men if there wasn't going to be some sort of indictment at some point. So, you know, we'll see. What are they going to indict him over? That's the open question. I don't know. I think in the same way that Trump didn't care and he tried to almost just steal a national election, right? He would have if he could have gotten away with it. You think he hasn't, like, cheated on his taxes or done tax fraud or insurance fraud or whatever? Of course he has. So if you look close enough, you're going to find there's some bad stuff there. The question is, what's the punishment going to be? I don't know. Because usually, you know, these white-collar criminals get away with stuff a lot more than average Joes and Janes do because they're politically connected. He's literally a former president. I don't know. Um, but the case is likely heating up based on the number of interviews with, we'll see, but the reality show never seems to end with this man, huh? Okay, next. Have some really terrible news for the media, particularly mainstream media here. Look at these numbers. Primetime cable news weekday change in total audience. Look at these numbers. Don Lemon is down... 32.5% in viewership, and he wasn't doing too well to begin with in viewership, relatively speaking, compared to the other shows and the other networks. Anderson Cooper down 32.2%. Cuomo Primetime down 28.5%. All In with Chris Hayes down 16.7%. The Ingram Angle down 9.2%. The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell down 17.6%. Hannity down 11.9%. Tucker Carlson is faring better than any of the others. He's only down 4.8%. And Rachel Maddow is down 9.1%. So basically, um, cable news is kind of imploding, kind of imploding in the Biden era. That's what's happening. It's imploding in the Biden era. Um, Why? Well, you know, we could speculate all day about this, but the relatively obvious answer is that Trump's gone and we no longer have the 24-7 reality show. We no longer have the cheap sugar high of the fake scandals happening under Trump. And I say fake scandals, not to say that there aren't real scandals. Of course, there were real scandals under Trump. But the media always seemed to focus on the silliest angle of the silliest scandals with Trump. 
They'd get mad over a tweet, some word he used. It would never be. It wouldn't be policy based. If it was policy based. You would have had two weeks of outrage over that shitty tax cut for the rich bill he did, and there wasn't outrage over that. So uh, that's what I mean by that. So they're imploding. They're imploding. And funny enough, even though CNN and MSNBC they hate Trump with a burning passion, he actually did provide them with an influx of viewers and an influx of ad money, too. Ad money is down about 25% as well across the board. It varies from show to show and network to network, but ad revenue is down about 25%. So everybody is struggling in this post-Trump era, and it does seem to be the case that, you know, we had gotten used to a certain level of scandal and endless coverage and reality show effect in our politics. And I just hope that people, you know, the real solution here, the real answer, the best case scenario would be you still have incredibly high engagement, incredibly high viewership, although mainstream media sucks. They don't deserve anybody watching them. But you still have people being very involved in politics while also having, you know, substantive leaders who are policy-oriented. Unfortunately, you know, this. I'm wishing for a unicorn as a pet when I say these things, because it's not going to happen, right? But that would be ideal, where people are politically involved, really well-versed in this stuff, really educated about this stuff, but also we have leaders who are substantive and policy-oriented and doing the right things. Not going to happen, but a boy can dream. But listen, as much as I want to solely dunk on mainstream media in this conversation, can't lie to you guys, man. New media is exactly like this. Almost everybody's numbers are down. Um, even people who aren't down that much are down a little bit. Like you see Tucker Carlson's down about 5%. In new media, it's the same thing. The ones who are weathering the storm the most are down about 5%. Others are down way more than that. We're really, you know, I was already in a position where I was on some shitty algorithm, sort of deranked and below levels of corporate media outlets and official outlets. So I already was in a, in a bind where they limit how many new subscribers we can get to the show. I'm not going to lie to you guys. This past month has been maybe the worst ever for Secular Talk. We gained like less than 1,000 subscribers, which is just horrendous. I mean, there was a time when in the 2016 election when we weren't deranked and on a shitty algorithm where we gained 40,000 subs a month, you know? So, um content's the same. I'm exactly the same, but they are sort of holding us back in a way. Um, so new media is suffering this in the same way that old media is suffering this, traditional media is suffering this. But listen, at the end of the day, the burden really is and should be on us. You know, like, hey, find a way to be educational and informational and substantive while also being entertaining. That's the name of the game. And if you do that effectively, you can weather the storm to a certain extent. Listen, don't get it twisted. Some of the downturn is inevitable. Like, it's just going to happen. More people are going to be interested in politics during an election than right after an election. That's just the way the world works. I mean, it, it is what it is. It's like saying people are more interested in sports during the playoffs than during the offseason. Well, no shit. Of course they're going to be. So it's going to happen to some extent. But, you know, it's on you to weather that storm as good as you possibly can. And listen, the fact of the matter is, I view these audiences as fake anyway for mainstream media. Because really, where is CNN on? Where is MSNBC on? It's on at like barbershops 
and airports and your grandma's house as she's making lunch and nobody's even watching it or paying attention to it. These people don't have, like, real hardcore fans. They don't. They're just, like, they just exist to fill the void and the emptiness of nothingness. Like, that's why they're there. Nobody's really, I really want to know what Don Lemon has to say about fuck out of here. It doesn't happen. So really, I view their audiences as fake anyway. So in a way, I think they're getting what they deserve. You know, they're artificially propped up. I've always made this point about Wolf Blitzer, not to pick only on Wolf Blitzer, although it's funny to do that. If you give him, if you give him the same deal that every YouTuber got, every news and politics independent YouTuber got, which is, okay, we're going to start you from scratch. And go ahead, go make an audience. You have no money, no advertising budget, no nothing. Start from scratch. Go get people interested in what you have to say. He would never make it. Wolf Blitzer would never crack a thousand subscribers because nobody would be interested in what the fuck he has to say. Not educational, not informational, not substantive, and also not interesting. Why would anybody watch you? Watching your show is like watching paint dry. Anybody want to watch paint dry? I don't think so. So they're artificially propped up in a way. They're artificially propped up. And the fact of the matter is, unfortunately, I think the propagandists on Fox News are better propagandists, but they also happen to be insanely wrong about everything. You know, so anyway, really rough time for the media. Also, trust in media is the lowest that it's, and I think that makes sense. I think, that, I think that's correct. I think the people are right to react like that. Matt Taibbi's book, Hate Inc., on the media is brilliant. You know, his argument is, We've always needed an enemy to keep eyeballs on the screen and to keep the ad dollars flowing. And there was a time back in the day when it was the Soviet Union. Then it became Islamic terrorism during the war on terror and fear-mongering about al-Qaeda. And now they've made you turn on your fellow Americans. Democrats have turned on Republicans. Republicans have turned on Democrats. It's hyper-partisan. It's hyper-vitriolic. But the fact of the matter is that shouldn't be the case. The media should be informational, educational, substantive, should be focused on policy, should be focused on the issues, and to the extent that there's any narrative, which really there shouldn't be much of a narrative at all, because it should just be data and facts and information and educated opinions. Um, But to the extent there is, the point should be the corrupt and the elite and the donor class, the special interests, have bought the government and they've rigged the rules in their favor and against the 99%. That's the, to the, the extent that there's any narrative, that's the narrative that makes sense. And you don't see that almost anywhere. So, you know, forgive me as I play the world's smallest violin for these losers who should have never had eyeballs on them in the first place. Okay. All right. Let me take a final quick break. When we come back, I got... um, some foreign policy stuff that you're not going to want to miss, and a stupid Fox News segment on wokeness. Stay right there.
y'all. I am back. Let us continue. Talk a little bit about foreign policy. Here we go, baby. Mint Press News uh, has this article that they just released talking about a, a, a code pink analysis that uh, recently came out. This is, this is pretty astonishing. The numbers here are wild. The United States and its allies have dropped at least 326,000 bombs and missiles on countries in the greater Middle East and North Africa region since 2001. That is the conclusion of new research by Medea Benjamin and Nicholas J.S. Davies of anti-war group Code Pink. Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, and Yemen are the countries that have felt the worst of the violence, but Lebanon, Libya, Pakistan, Palestine, and Somalia have also been targeted. The total amounts to an average of 46 bombs dropped per day over the last 20 years. Code Pink's numbers are based primarily on official U.S. military releases as well as data from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, the Yemen Data Project, and the New America Foundation. As striking as the figure of 326,000 is, it is an underestimate as the Trump administration ceased publishing figures of its bombing campaigns in 2020, meaning there's no data for Iraq, Syria, or Afghanistan for either of the previous two years. Also not counted are bombs or missiles used in helicopter strikes AC-130 gunship attacks, strafing runs from U.S. bombers, or any counterinsurgency or counterterrorism operations in other parts of the world. So really, really, it's over 50 bombs dropped by the United States since the beginning of the war on terror per day. Over 50 bombs per day. Now, put aside the ethics of this and the morality of this, which, by the way, we shouldn't do. Like, don't do that. That should be the centerpiece of the conversation when we have this conversation. But putting that aside for one second, think of the financial angle here, right? They tell us all the time, we can't afford to do this. We can't afford to do that. We can't afford to have free college. We can't afford to have universal health care. Can't afford to have paid vacation time by law. They just, they just did this over the $15 minimum wage. Ah, we can't, we can't really afford it. I mean, what are we going to do? We can't really afford it. By the way, businesses would pay it, not the government. But even if you have the government do tax credits for smaller businesses to hit $15 an hour, it would be next to nothing in terms of the cost, relatively speaking. But like this, this, nobody ever made a peep. Nobody ever said a word about it. Across the board, establishment media treats this as Simple as the sun rising and setting. Like, this is just the way it works. It's just baked into the cake of the way the country functions. And in D.C., even your most progressive Congress people, they don't have much to say about this. See how perverse the system is and how perverse our priorities are? I've given this fact before, but it merits mentioning again. A few years ago, two or three years ago, there was a new uh, military budget proposed, and it was an increase of about $80 billion year to year. That's not the full military budget. That's just the year-to-year increase in the military budget, $80 billion. Um, Nobody made a peep 
about that. And if I remember correctly, it passed. A lot of Democratic support as well. $80 billion increase. Colossal military budget. The cost for free college, a bill that Bernie proposed, was about $60 billion. $80 billion in just the increase that we spend on the military year to year. $80 billion increase. Passed, nobody made a peep about the debt or the deficit. Bernie proposed a $60 billion cost for free college. All you heard is, well, how are we going to pay for it? How are we going to afford it? This is wild. This is crazy. How can we do such a thing? I mean, do we really even have the money to do such a thing? That seems crazy. That's the mindset. That's how warped our worldview has become. That's manufacturing consent, where the confines of the debate and the discussion are limited. You're allowed to debate within a tiny spectrum of acceptable and respectable thought. But if you step outside of it, you're an extremist and everybody should laugh you out of the room. Well, you know, this is, this is one of those things. You can't say, oh my God, we dropped 50 bombs a day. What if we dropped zero? Because then you're crazy. See, because the way, the way they police the discourse here is the Republicans are for hard imperialism, where they want to do ground invasions, boots on the ground, as they call it. And the Democrats are for soft imperialism, soft power, where all they want to do is use drones and use, you know, airstrikes and whatnot. So aren't they so much better and more advanced? Well, listen, here's the result. Under Republican presidents, Trump and Bush, and a Democratic president for eight years, Obama, it worked out to about... Over 50 bombs dropped per day. You know how much each one of those costs? It varies, and there's different bombs and all that stuff. But they cost about $21,000. $21,000 per bomb, and they're dropping over 50 per day. Imagine you just gave, cut a check to an American, the price of one bomb, instead of making $21,000 explode in, in Kabul, you just cut a check, 21 grand to a random American. 50 per day since the early 2000s. I, I'm not going to do the math on that, but you go ahead and do the math on that. Over 50 bombs per day, 21 grand a pop since the early 2000s. And nobody talks about the cost. Nobody talks about the price. But they always trot it out for things for you, like universal basic income, like Medicare for all, like free college. Our priorities are warped. Don't ever say we can't do basic social democratic things. We know we can. Other countries have done basic social democratic things. It's easy. They are choosing not to, and they're choosing not to because they're corrupt. Because Wall Street and billionaires own the government, and the military-industrial complex owns the government. And every decision they make proves that. Here we go. Jake Tapper. I'm going to do an incredibly rare thing on Secular Talk. In fact, I'm not sure I've ever done this before. Maybe once or twice I've done this before, but I'm going to give credit to CNN, a segment here on CNN. This is Jake Tapper, surprisingly, doing real journalism and covering a very real issue. In our world, we 400,000 children, 400,000 are at risk of dying right now in Yemen. 
as its six-year civil war rages on. 400,000, according to the United Nations World Food Program, whose chief tweeted this urgent plea today. We need this war to end, and we need support financially, food, nutrition, medical supplies, and we need it now. And now a heartbreaking new CNN investigation shows just how dire the situation really is on the ground. The Biden administration says it wants to bring an end to the war, which was partially funded by American tax dollars, by no longer backing the Saudi-led coalition, which has been fighting Iranian-backed Houthis. U.S. backing of the war started under Obama and escalated under Trump. Now, CNN's investigation finds it's been more than two months since the U.S.-backed Saudi blockade has allowed tankers packed with the necessary fuel for food and supplies to reach starving Yemenis to dock at the crucial port of Hadeda, which is controlled by the Houthis. And 14 tankers scheduled to dock there are currently being held off the Saudi coast, according to a vessel tracking app, all which goes against a United Nations agreement. CNN's Nima Elbegert made a very dangerous trip on a small boat to get inside Houthi territory in northern Yemen, a place few foreign journalists have ever been, in order to show the world, in order to show you what it's really like for innocent parents and children. And we want to warn you, some of these images will be tough to watch. The derelict coastline of the north of Yemen. Rusting hulks tell a story of war, blockade, and devastation. For years now, the Houthi-controlled north has been increasingly isolated from the outside world. We secretly traveled through the night by boat after our previous reporting here led the government to deny us entry. On the road to Hadeda port, we get a sense of the humanitarian disaster kept from the outside world. Along the roadside, hundreds of stalled food supply trucks with no fuel to move. In a country in the grip of hunger, their cargo stands spoiling in the hot sun. The port of Hadeda is the supply gateway for the rest of the country. It should be bustling with activity, but today it is eerily empty. A result of the U.S.-backed Saudi blockade. The last tanker to dock here was in December. In the echoing silence, it dawns on us. We are about to witness the terrible impact of this blockade. Desperate patients and family members trying to get the attention of Dr. Khalid, chairman of Hadeda's hospital. If he signs these papers, they get some financial relief for their treatments and medicines. He doesn't get far before he is stopped again and again. Since the Yemen war started six years ago, families have been in financial freefall. The fuel blockade has sped that descent into oblivion. This is the main hospital for Hadeda province, and we're surrounded by doctors and nurses rushed off their feet. Is this a normal day? Is this this busy all the time? No, not the busy Khalid wants to show us some of his critical patients in the therapeutic feeding center. A 10-year-old girl whose growth has been so stunted by starvation, she can no longer Dr. Khalid says every hour of every day they are receiving more and more cases of severe malnutrition that are this advanced because the parents can't afford to feed their children. They also can't afford to bring them to the hospital to treat them. The UN says pockets of Yemen are in famine-like conditions. 
but it says Hudaida is not considered one of them because it doesn't meet the metrics to declare famine. But Dr. Khalid thinks the reality on the ground has outpaced the UN's projections. The Saudi fuel blockade is biting. Malnutrition numbers are spiking, and at the same time, this busy hospital is running out of the vital fuel that keeps its generators running, which means that babies like Maryam, who doctors say at two months weighs the same as a newborn, would die. All of that, all of that is preventable. I'll go further. All of that is easily preventable. All it would take is Washington, D.C., the Biden administration, top officials in our government to say, Saudi, stop it. If you don't stop it, we're going to sanction you. We're going to kick you off the U.N. Human Rights Council, and we're going to stop all business relations. Now, obviously, you know, there's the petrodollar, and we're in bed with them, and they're our allies, so we look the other way, and we support them with what they do. But if we actually were led by a concern for human rights and justice, we would do something to quell this from happening because this, it's unacceptable. 400,000 kids at risk of dying. There's an embargo. There's a subsequent famine. So people are starving. People aren't getting the medicines that they need. And there's also a vicious bombing campaign. It's U.S. and Saudi bombs killing civilians. By the way, the other thing is we arm Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia in turn arms Sunni militias on the ground fighting in Yemen. You know who those militias are? Al-Qaeda. Sunni extremist militias, it's Al-Qaeda. So they're fighting the Houthis on the ground. Listen, the backstory is a little complicated, but you had a Sunni government, and the Sunni government was overthrown by the Shia Houthis, and so Saudi Arabia wants the Sunni government back in power, their ally back in power, and so they've been waging a vicious four-year war and bombing campaign. And um, it's unacceptable. By the way, there's been stories of bombs hitting schools, hitting markets, killing civilians, and then you could see the remains of the bombs, they're American-made bombs. And so, of course, this is breeding resentment in Yemen against Americans because our bombs are killing them. Biden said, oh, we're going to stop, you know, helping Saudi Arabia with their illegal bombing campaign. But then we found out soon thereafter, they were like, oh, we only meant we're going to stop with the offensive bombing. We're still going to help them with the bombing if it's defensive. Okay, well, the big loophole is they could just declare anything defensive and then bomb. And Biden will probably go right along with it. See, it's the dishonesty that drives me crazy. It's the dishonesty from the Biden administration where they act like, no, we're going to care about human rights, and then they don't at all. And then they continue the same policies that existed under Trump. That's exactly what's happening here. That's exactly what's happening um, in Venezuela, Iran. They're continuing the Trump policies as they pretend like, we're the ones who are serious adults who care about human rights. Nonsense. Nonsense. They could stop this blockade, this embargo, tomorrow, today, if they wanted to. Joe Biden just had to pick up the phone and demand it. You want to know why? We have the most powerful military in the world, and they're our ally. What we say they do, they do. They might not like it. I don't give a fuck if they don't like it. I don't care if they don't like it. Instead, what did Biden do? He released a report that said MBS was responsible for the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist, and then he didn't do anything about it. No sanctions, no nothing. And then he showed his loyalty to Saudi Arabia by bombing some of the targets that they wanted bombed in Syria. So this is an unholy alliance that we have going on here. And listen, I hate to be so direct about it, but it's true. Joe Biden 
and the U.S. government and Trump before him and Obama before him, I think even this was going on even at the end of Obama's time in office, they are actively promoting and facilitating a genocide. A genocide. When there's a blockade and an embargo and there's a famine and kids are dying and you're bombing civilians nonstop, and we're at best sitting by and allowing it to happen, at worst actively participating in it, that's unacceptable. This is illegal under U.S. law and international law, violation of the Nuremberg Tribunal and the Geneva Convention, and we don't care. We don't care. It's pathetic. It's unacceptable. It's criminal. And credit to CNN and Jake Tapper for covering this. This is real journalism covering real issues, and everybody needs to know about this. By the way, this is what your tax dollars are going towards. This is what it's going towards. Your tax dollars are going to Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia is carrying out a genocide. We can't just sit by and watch this happen. This is unacceptable. I know Americans like to think we're, by definition, we're the good guys. We're on the right side of every fight. On this one, we are objectively on the wrong side of the fight. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And any kind of whining or crying about human rights situations elsewhere, you know, comes across, it rings incredibly hollow when you know that we're partaking in a humanitarian crisis and we're actively on the wrong side. We're helping facilitate a genocide. So when we say anything about human rights anywhere else, people laugh at us. Because of stuff like this, this needs to stop, and this needs to stop now. Okay, next. So Amazon uh, made some news. Take a look at this. This is in the Hill. Amazon has made the decision to recent decision recently, excuse me, to remove books from its catalog that frame transgender and other LGBTQ identities as mental illnesses. The Wall Street Journal reported on Thursday. The move came after four Republicans, Marco Rubio, Mike Lee, Mike Braun, and Josh Hawley, sent a letter on February 24th to Chief Executive Jeff Bezos, questioning why, when Harry became Sally, responding to the transgender moment was no longer available on Amazon platforms, including Kindle and Audible. As to your specific question about when Harry became Sally, we have chosen not to sell books that frame LGBTQ plus identity as a mental illness, Amazon said in the letter to the senators obtained by the outlet. Okay, so there's a lot to say about this. First and foremost, that book seems to genuinely be pretty shitty. You know, um, there's a lot of people masquerading as experts on gender issues and science issues around that, but really they're just ideologues and they have partisan opinions and they want to promote them, okay? Um, So having said that, I don't at all endorse any of that. It should be sold. People, I mean, that's what freedom is. You allow people to sell stuff even if it's questionable or problematic. I mean, people should be able to buy fucking Mein Kampf, Hitler's book. Now, are are some people who are genuine Nazi supporters going to buy that and read it? Yes, that's going to happen. But you know what? There's going to be plenty of people who read it who are not that. Who are not that, and they want to see the mind of the madman, the psychopath, the genocidal maniac. They want to see what he was thinking, what he said in his book. Should we ban the book because he wrote it? 
no, that's ridiculous. That is, that is the definition of authoritarian. Banning books, that is authoritarian. Okay? Now, again, I get it. This is a private company. They get to make their own decision, so they have the right to do it. But I'm arguing even though they have the right to do it, they shouldn't do it. That's what I'm saying. So even though this isn't a violation of the First Amendment because it has nothing to do with the government, it is a violation of the principle of free expression. It is a, a violation of the idea that we should have an open marketplace for you to read whatever you want. Now, you might look at this and say, you know what, I agree with Amazon to ban it. Will you agree with Amazon uh, when the day comes that they ban Karl Marx? Lenin? Angles? I don't know, fill in the blank with whatever, you know, um, ideology you happen to believe in or are sympathetic to or are just curious at the wor- of the works. Like, because now the conservatives are going to turn around and say, all right, well, you're banning our anti-trans books, so now they should ban... Uh, commie books. Now they should ban the Communist Manifesto. And they'll make their tortured bullshit arguments about that millions of people have been killed because of the ideas that were perpetuated by communists. And this is unacceptable. And if you're going to ban this, you've got to ban that. Let's just draw one clean line and say, nobody ban anything. Nobody ban anything. Okay? And listen, I want to have the ability as somebody who is not anti-trans I want to see what the anti-trans bigots are thinking. I do. I want to see what their arguments are. I want to see what they're thinking. I want to see what insane right-wingers are thinking. There's a, what's it called? Is it called the Pink Swastika? There's this book written by an insane anti-gay Christian about how all the Nazis were gay. It's called, I think it's called the Pink Swastika. Uh, something like that. That's, the cover of the book has like a, it's like pink and there's a swastika, I think. And the premise is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. All the Nazis were gay, and that's one of the main reasons why they did the genocide. Dumbest book you could ever imagine. I want to be able to read that so I learn more about the crazy televangelists and the Christian fundamentalists and what they really believe. You know, And if you're going to ban things that are problematic, which is what they're doing here, well, then where the fuck do you draw the line? Because something is problematic to everybody. There are people who would say my shit should be banned. You know, and not that I don't have a book, but if I did, there'd be plenty of people who think I should ban it because I'm a controversial figure. So you can't, just don't open this door to banning books. I can 100% agree that this book is bad. There's more death and destruction brought about by the Bible than any other book. Should we ban the Bible? Should you not be allowed to read the Bible? No, it's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. In a free society, you let people read what they want to read. That's what it is. So, you know, it's, uh, it's a real shame, man, that we're going down this path. And it start, this is how it starts. It starts out with, okay, we get it, this book is bad. Yes, any book that's openly racist or sexist or xenophobic or bigoted, bigoted or transphobic or whatever, that's all bad. But you can't ban every book that espouses those ideas. And also, by the way, the, the raw volume and number of books you'd have to ban if you applied this principle is preposterous. I mean, the DSM, the, you know, the, the psychology or psychiatrist manual, you have to ban every one up until like the 1980s because the ones before that treated homosexuality as, as a mental illness. Now, it's not a mental illness, and today we shouldn't talk about it as a mental illness, but if there are books that say that, have a historical perspective or whatever, of course you allow it. And if there are people who believe it now, in a free society, they're allowed to speak their mind. They're wrong, and I'll argue with them about it, but you don't ban it. You don't just ban That's a cheap shortcut to try to win a debate. 
That's what it is. And even though I agree, there are many ideas that are not debatable. If somebody writes a book saying creationism is correct and evolution is wrong, that's the dumbest motherfucker on the planet, but he should be able to write it. She should be able to write it. They should be able to write it. So I just, I, this is not a thing that should ever happen is the point, you know? And I get it, private company, they can make whatever decision they want, but this is a dumb decision. They should sell whatever book. They should sell Mein Kampf. They should sell Communist Manifesto. They should sell the Pink Swastika, whatever the fuck it's called. They should sell this shit. They should sell all these books, problematic or not, and that's the way it should work. We sh- shouldn't embrace authoritarianism. And if you do embrace it because you happen to like the targets here, good luck in the future because it's going to come for somebody you like. That's a guarantee. Okay. All right, final story of the day real quick. Here we go. I'm just going to do a quick one. Do a quick one on Trump. Trump has reappeared. And uh, listen, man, not going to lie to you. He ain't looking too hot, dog. He is looking rough. That is a very, very sad picture. Sad, sad. Um, I'm not sure I've ever seen him look that bad. That is really bad. Now, listen, I don't want to be a dick and say things like, what the fuck is going on with his neck? That loose-ass skin? He's a zillion times paler than he normally is, although normally he's bright orange. Um, He just looks bad. He looks like he he lost a lot of weight, which I guess is a good thing, but it almost makes him look sickly. So I don't know what's going on with this picture, but the reason why we're talking about it and the reason why it merits a mention is because the reason this picture went viral is because some hardcore Republican Trump fan tweeted it and said, the president looks amazing and the liberals can't handle it. What? (laughs) How do you look at that picture and think he looks amazing? Like I'm truly astounded by the most hardcore Trump supporters who genuinely appear to be in a cult who really have shut their brains off and Treat him as a demigod. Forget a demigod, as a god-god. I don't know how anybody could look at that picture and be honest and say, oh, he looks great. So I don't know. Hopefully that guy was trolling. Hopefully it was sort of like a joke. Hopefully he's not even a hardcore Trump person. But that is not the sense I get. The sense I get is that that's real, that that person really believes Trump looks good there, which means that brain is permanently scrambled and it's massively drunken intoxicated on One American News Network and Newsmax and Fox News and Trump's nonsense, but Jesus Christ, he looks rough. Never seen him look that bad. And his, his diehards are saying he looks great. So, I mean, listen. Said it once, I'll say it again. There are TFGs. TFGs exist. And uh, a good litmus test is ask people what they think of this picture. And if you get the answer that they think he looks good or that he's hot or that he's fit or whatever, I mean, then you know. Write them off, because ain't no coming back for somebody like that. All right, guys. I love you, baby. I'll talk to everybody soon. Have a great rest of the day. I'm out. Peace.